Uh, as you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Hoffecker uh, uh, is with us. Uh, I have asked him, as well as perhaps he volunteered, uh, to speak on uh, one of the great Princeton theologians. Uh, and so uh, this morning we're going to learn uh, a measure of uh, Princeton theology, a look at Charles Hodge, uh, and uh, I trust to receive some good applications for our contemporary church as well as uh, our lives. Uh, but let's uh, begin first with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, as always, we thank Thee for Thy good grace, uh, for Thy bounties that come to us from history, from life, but in all things from the Word of the living God. Uh, we pray that such words might inspire us, encourage us, strengthen us, and fit us out uh, to live as lights uh, shining uh, in a sad and dark world that we might be encouraged and refreshed as we learn of the great providence of God to thy people in days gone by and how fitting it is that we would so learn from their courage, their tenacity, their faithfulness that we might be reminded of those who have gone before us. Bless uh, Dr. Hoffecker. Uh, in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Uh, it has been, indeed been a pleasure. My first visit to Oklahoma City uh, the state of Oklahoma, as a matter of fact, and um, uh, I, I, it's a real privilege to speak about a person that I've studied for most of my academic life. Uh, I was doing my doctorate at Brown in the late 60s, a time of uh, the rise of, uh, of secularism, and um, I was rooting around for a topic for my dissertation. And uh, when you do a dissertation, you're supposed to deal with something that gives new credibility, a new insight into an old topic. And it just so happens, I would say it just so happens, obviously providentially, uh, uh, there was a book that came out called The Origins of Fundamentalism. And of course, fundamentalism was a movement in the early 20th century that tried to get some of the mainline churches uh, back into line with what they called the fundamentals of the gospel. And there were five fundamentals, the, the, uh, the authority and inerrancy of the scriptures, the virgin birth of Christ, the, the, the atonement, vicarious atonement of Christ, uh, fulfillment of prophecy, and, and Christ's second coming. Those were, those were some of the fundamentals of the doctrine. And the person that wrote this uh, origins of fundamentalism pointed out that one of the origins of fundamentalism was Princeton theology. Well, that caught my attention uh, because I knew of Charles Hodge. I knew of how the Princetonians had stood uh, squarely for reform thinking in the 19th century. So I, I read this book on the, uh, on the origin of fundamentalism, and uh, the person was making the point that fundamentalism grew up because of a marriage between Princeton theology and uh, 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 the, uh, kind of evangelicalism of the time. Uh, actually, the interest in the, the, the second coming of Christ and, and so forth. And as the person was explaining this, the, the person said, Princeton theology is simply Christian rationalism. It's simply taking texts from the Bible, proof-texting them, and in a very rational way, uh, putting the Bible together into a theological system. And I knew I had my topic. 
because I knew that Princeton theology was more than simply head knowledge. I knew that it was more than simply taking texts from the Scripture and pasting them together so that you have an orderly, rational view. And so uh, I submitted my topic for my dissertation. I spent the summer at Princeton of 1969. And every day that I went to the library, it was like having my devotions because I read their sermons. I read what they preached on. I read how they communicated the gospel. I read how they looked at the whole of the Christian life. And so all I did was, was take the, the writings of three major Princetonians, Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, and Benjamin B. Warfield, and showed that there was a strong strain of piety, a strong strain of heart religion, in fact, uh, Charles Hodge said in the introduction to his systematic theology, you can do theology in several ways. He says two of the correct ways that you could do theology is obviously do it out of the scriptures. Obviously, that's true. But he says one of the ways that you could do correct theology is simply study the great hymns of the church because the great hymns of the church celebrate the great doctrines of the church. And so the, the whole idea that you could write a theology out of singing from your heart indicates that, that the Princetonians were not simply cold, hard rationalists. So uh, I, I spent the summer of 1969 studying Alexander, Hodge, and Warfield, and that resulted in my dissertation. Well, as a result of that beginning, I uh, was eventually asked to do a biography of Hodge for the Reform Biography series published by the Presbyterian Reform Publishing Company. And that gave me an opportunity to dig more deeply into the life of Charles Hodge. I spent uh, a week in the library up there at Princeton the first time I went, and I found out that there were 13 linear feet just of his letters. How do you read 13 linear feet of a correspondence? He wrote to everybody. He uh, corresponded with all kinds of people over. He, he was the first professor in America to celebrate 50 years in the professorate. He was the first one in America to do that. There had been other people in Europe that had uh, done 50 years in the professorate, but, but he was the first one in America. And so uh, the idea of, of putting all these things together. So. What I'd like to open up to you, uh, just for a brief time this morning, is, is what did this man, where did he come from in his family? How was his faith produced as a child? Uh, how was he educated? And then what kind of things did, did Hodge write on that made such a vital contribution, not simply to the head, but also to the heart? Uh, how did he blend together the... Uh, cognitive elements of, uh, of our experience along with the effective and the emotive part. Well, he was uh, born in 1797, and uh, he came out of a family that was rich in the Presbyterian tradition. He, uh, Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterianism was founded in, uh, in 1790 by Francis McAmey, and uh, by the time that Hodge uh, came into uh, uh, the world, and, and began to do his work, uh, Presbyterianism had already experienced one major schism, a schism over the Great Awakening and revivalism. 
because as you may well know, the engine of American religion for decades and even a century or more was revivalism. There was a revival in the 18th century called the First Great Awakening. There was a revival in the Second Great, uh, Second Great Awakening in the 19th century. And then people have seen even revivals since then, Billy Graham being another example of American revivalism and American religion. And so the, there, there had already been a split in the Presbyterian Church. They came back together again uh, by the time that Hodge was around. But the big issue was, what's the relationship between conversion and nurture? Does conversion come first or does nurture come first? And Charles Hodge was, was raised in a tradition. Uh, his father died when Hodge was merely six years old. That left his mother with two sons to raise uh, with uh, almost no income. She took on boarders. She, uh, she catechized uh, her son Hugh and Charles. Uh, Hugh went on to become a famous doctor at, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania Hospital in, uh, in Philadelphia, and Hodge became one of the, the great theologians of the, of the 19th century. But the big question became, how do you bring up children? Do you, is your goal to have them have a kind of crisis conversion experience, and then you nurture them after that? Or do you raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that when a conversion occurs, it builds on that relationship that had occurred within the family. Well, uh, Mary Hodge was, was uh, faithful in catechizing her son. Charles and Hugh both learned the shorter catechism. Their pastor, Ashbel Green, preached from the confession in church, and he would come and visit the families and, and uh, question the children as to what they knew about the catechism. They would have a question and answer period. And, uh, and, and Charles said of, of his early life, he says, I never came closer to Paul's uh, injunction to pray without ceasing than when I was a child. I thought there was nothing I couldn't talk to my Father in heaven about. I, I believed that, that I could talk to him as I could talk to my mother. And... Uh, as a result of this kind of ingrained and disciplined, uh, he, in fact, he, he used the expression that, that my mother drilled us in the catechism, drilled us in the Westminster Confession. Um, so so uh, Hodge says, as a result of this piety, I only swore once in my life. He says, I was walking down the street, and I tripped over a stone, and I swore. And my brother said, why, Charles? And he says, I was so embarrassed. He says, I never swore again in my life. And I said, I don't know what came over me. It must have been the old man. It must have been the sin lingering in my life. So you get a picture of a person who uh, was, was nurtured in the faith, uh, subject to the teaching of the gospel every Sunday, uh, subject to taking... The being part of uh, the, the work of the, of the church, seeing discipline exercised. And, and so therefore, the, the whole idea of, of nurturing, so that when, when Hodge went to Princeton, uh, he entered Princeton at the age of 15. 
he received advanced standing because he already knew Greek and Latin. And so therefore, he was able to enter as a sophomore at the age of 15 at Princeton. And uh, he, he was obviously a very bright child, a very bright person. When revival came to Princeton in 1814, 1815, uh, Charles Hodge uh, professed his faith in Christ. And so what you see in, in Hodge's life was a, a, a nurturing experience, brought up in the Christian faith, subject to its discipline, subject to, to careful teaching, uh, a prayerful life, uh, witnessing the sacraments. So that when his conversion experience occurred, because he dated his conversion from, despite all that I've just described to you, he, he dated his conversion to this revival in 1814 and 1815. So that was one model of, uh, of, of Christian experience, the, the nurture crisis model. You're nurtured in the faith, and then eventually you have a kind of conversion experience, which you might call a crisis, and you, uh, you go on from there. Now, the, the other model was, uh, and that was a model that was primarily fulfilled in the First Great Awakening. When, when Jonathan Edwards preached in the First Great Awakening, it was the surprising work of God. Uh, that, that God, in pouring out revival, it was because God initiated it. It's because God poured out his blessing. In the Second Great Awakening, it was largely the idea that we could work up a revival, that there were, there were new measures that would ensure the gospel's success. And as a result of that view, there was another model of the Christian life presented. And that model of the Christian life was that you experienced at some point in your life a crisis conversion experience. And only after the crisis conversion experience are you nurtured in the faith. And, and what that tended to encourage people was that, uh, that you might put off uh, your religious uh, duties until you experience this crisis conversion. And then only after that do you receive the nurture. Um, I'll mention in a couple of minutes what the effect was in the 19th century of that kind of view. So Charles Hodge uh, was, was bright, Charles Hodge uh, uh, entered with and, and studied at Princeton. He says the only real gap in his education at, at Princeton uh, College was that he never learned French and German. Now that's important because of what he eventually became as a scholar. In his seminary life, uh, he made many friendships. One of the longest friendships that he had was with a man named John Johns who became a bishop in the uh, Episcopal Church after he graduated. John Johns was first in his class on graduation. Charles Hodge was second. And so therefore, he had this lifetime experience of, of communicating with somebody outside of his own uh, denomination uh, who received the same education that he did in, uh, in essentially Presbyterianism at, uh, at Princeton Seminary. Now, the Princeton Seminary model uh, was what has become known as the Athens model of theological education. The Athens model of theological education, I'm, I'm kind of sorry that it has a Greek name associated with it, but uh, nevertheless, the, the whole idea of theological education is based on the idea of padia. Padia is, is instruction. Padia is instruction, but it's not simply instruction of the head. It's also instruction of the heart. 
And so therefore, the goal of theological education is not simply to fill you with theological ideas, but to have your life conform to the ideas so that the soul as well as the mind is shaped and formed by what you learn. And so therefore, the, the, the idea of shaping a soul, the, the, the professors were intended to model the Christian life to their students. And the Christian and the students were to participate in the devotional life of the seminary. They, they had a, a, a chapel. They had every Sunday afternoon, they had a meeting in what was called the oratory that was devoted exclusively to Christian experience. So the, 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 in the classroom, one learned Greek and Hebrew, one learned the theology, one learned apologetics, one learned church history. But every Sunday afternoon, the sole purpose of meeting was to talk about your Christian experience. Uh, what is it to be prepared for the sacraments? What is it to live a holy life? What is it to, to be conformed to, to Christ? And, and uh, so every, every Sunday afternoon, the professors and the students together uh, were talking about what it is to live as a Christian, what it is to live the Christian life. And so therefore, uh, Hodge uh, was, the, as a student and then later as a pro professor, uh, greatly shaped uh, by the devotional life of, of the seminary. He became very close friends with Archibald Alexander, who was the first professor at Princeton. When Princeton was founded in 1812, uh, they called Archibald Alexander, who was a missionary in, in, uh, in Virginia, to become the first president of, the, uh, of the, the first professor at the seminary. And Hodge and Alexander, Alexander became the father that Hodge never had. And he was therefore uh, very closely related with Alexander. And, and one summer, uh, Alexander and Hodge took a 600-mile tour uh, throughout Virginia of where Alexander had served before. So, so he was mentored. He, he, he was uh, uh, discipled by someone who had been a pastor, by someone who had uh, uh, taught the faith. But in addition to going into uh, to Virginia, uh, Hodge also is, went out of the environs of Princeton and he visited Boston. He went with a friend, and uh, when he went to, to Boston, he, he noticed uh, the, the kind of culture that was in Boston. He, he noticed, he, he visited certain people that were famous theologians at the time, Nathaniel W. Taylor, Moses Stewart, who were very famous professors at that time. And so he, he met those that eventually he would begin to dialogue with as he became a professor at the seminary himself. He was uh, elected to become a member of the faculty. Alexander wanted to have him serve on the faculty at Princeton. And uh, he uh, became aware of the fact that he was very arduous in his preparation of his classes. Uh, he always felt the kind of, because he was so young at the time, and because uh, some of his students had more learning in Greek before, than he did, he always kind of felt the students nipping at his heels. Uh, kind of, a, uh, he had to always kind of stay one step ahead of the of the of the students. But he became aware of the fact that if Princeton was to become a great seminary, he had to be aware of where theology was going in the future. 
he knew that Europe and the great universities in Europe were far ahead of where America was in terms of educational subjects, educational disciplines, and, and Hodge knew that he would have to learn French and German. And he would have to, he, what he wanted to do was to expose himself to theological methods that would be different from his own methods so that he could prepare the Princeton students to face the kind of academic topics that were going to come up in the coming century. So from 1826 to 1828, Hodge left his family and he went to Europe for two years. He studied in Paris. He learned Syriac in addition to, to, to French. He, uh, he learned some of the other uh, ancient languages that, that, that would uh, be contemporary with Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and of course, eventually he had to learn German because German was the major language in which the rising liberal theologians were writing. Um, but while he was in Germany, he was in several places. He was in Halle. He ended up in Berlin. I'll talk about Berlin in just a moment. But the point was, wherever he went, he found evangelical friends that he could share his faith with. He knew that the rising tide of liberalism was gaining ground in France and Germany. But he also knew that there had to be some members that were evangelical in nature. And so he formed very close friendship with several people while he was there in, in Germany. But he found he was the only Calvinist. He found he was the only one that believed in predestination. And so therefore they would have these uh, debates together. And uh, Hodge learned to hold his own. Hodge learned to, to answer the questions of those who objected to the idea of the sovereignty of God, who objected to the idea that only by regeneration by the Holy Spirit can one, uh, 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 and, and having been elected by God, by God the Father before the foundation of the world. So, so Hodge uh, got his experience of uh, uh, holding his own against other people's opinions, even when they might have been close in other areas of theology, Hodge learned what it was like to defend the Reformed faith. The main thing that Hodge witnessed there was when he was in Berlin. Uh, the University of Berlin was founded in 1810. Now, Hodge is there in 1826. The University of Berlin was founded to be an Enlightenment university, and the primary epistemological premise of Berlin University was to be was to be in every subject that is taught there is no final truth we are constantly in search of the truth there is the, the, the whole idea was to be uh, inductive in nature so that truth is something that we are constantly trying to approximate but there is no absolute truth well one of the founders of Berlin University was Friedrich Schleiermacher Friedrich Schleiermacher was the father of liberal theology. And so therefore, Schleiermacher had to fight to get theology into the curriculum because traditionally theology said the, the revelation in the scripture is truth. The revelation from scripture is the word of God. And so therefore, Schleiermacher had to fight to get theology even at the table intellectually at the University of Berlin. So that gives you a flavor of what 
the University of Berlin was like. And then there was a new idea of what theological training should be. Now, remember I said that Princeton said theological training should be paideia, in which the soul and the heart and the mind are developed in such a way that, that the truth is lived out, so that, that gradually the more you studied in theology, you more became like the theology you were studying. In other words, the process of sanctification, the process of, of having been regenerated resulted in a life of growth in the spirit. The University of Berlin produced a new view of theological education based, number one, on Wissenschaft. Wissenschaft simply means scientific study. That theological training is intellectual in nature, intellectual in nature that is scientific. Secondly, it is to be professional. The University of Berlin was training pastors to be professionals. That is, to leaders of society. So whereas Charles Hodge looked upon the ministry as a calling, a calling from God, in which you are trying to get your, your, uh, uh, your, your flock uh, growing in the Word of God, instead the idea is we are training professionals to be scientific in their attitude. And so therefore we have to kind of distance ourselves from the text in which we try to find which text is the true text, which text is genuine in the scripture, and which text is not. So, so Hodge found himself uh, finding a new method of theological education that he knew was eventually going to make its way to America. The Berlin model of theological education did make its way to America, and some of the great theological seminaries adopted the model that the ministry is not a calling, the ministry is a profession, like being a lawyer, like being a banker, like being a doctor. And so the idea of, the, of, of a pastor being called by God to nurture his people and so forth was replaced with the idea we're training our people to be good citizens, that we have a sociological task our task is primarily to minister to the society in that way. It's still a minister. They still solve it somewhat as a ministry, but you can see the difference between the two. So when, when Hodge, when Hodge left for Europe, his fellow professors at, at Princeton uh, warned him that what he was going to find were ideas that were not consistent with his piety and his Calvinism that he brought with him to Europe. He, he knew that he was going to face opposition. He knew he went to hear lectures by, uh, by the, he went to hear Schleiermacher preach. And he, he said he, he just never could understand what Schleiermacher was getting at. He says it because it was so subjective in nature. It was, it was so, it was such an appeal to merely to the heart that, uh, that, that his, the way that he would put things would be vague, lacking in clarity. In fact, he, he, uh, uh, Hodge just never could figure Schleiermacher out uh, because of, of, of the vagueness of his ideas. In other words, here's the beginning of liberal theology where, where many of our great doctrines were being compromised. And, uh, of course, Schleiermacher wrote his famous book, The Christian Faith, in which he systematically went through the doctrines of the Christian faith and said, this is how this doctrine arises out of our experience. 
rather than our experience arising out of our doctrine. There was a shift in method, a shift in, in training. So, so uh, when, when he faced this and when he, when he listened to some of the biblical critics uh, take the scripture apart and, and, and raise the question whether scripture itself was of any authority and which text is the true text and which text was simply legend, and, uh, and, and, and Hodge listened to these lectures and he knew that was going to come to America. So when he came back, he came back with resolve, that will not happen to Princeton. Princeton is going to remain true to the Westminster Confession. In fact, uh, one of the things that the professors had to do every year was to sign, re-sign their commitment to the Westminster Confession, as well as to the plan of the seminary as, as a whole. So this, this paradigm shift from uh, the idea of theological education as, as training the heart as well as the mind of staying orthodox and maintaining not only your orthodox theology but your orthodox piety, the kind of thing that should always go together. And Hodge came back and he said, one thing we will maintain at Princeton, and that is the very highest level of scholarship. We will maintain, we will read the text in Greek and Hebrew. We will read the text of the, of the great church historians. We will read the text of the great uh, theologians. Uh, but, and we will demand our students be absolutely uh, convinced of the, the truth of their faith. And, and so Princeton was, was uh, famous for the fact that it, that it produced not only sound pastors, but pastors who knew history, pastors who knew philosophy, pastors who knew apologetics, pastors who knew the original languages, so that when they opened up the scriptures, they were able to do so in, in, a, in a good way. So, so, so Charles Hodge was, was uh, uh, the, the, along with Archibald Alexander, and then of course the other professors that came, A.A. A. Hodge and eventually B.B. Warfield, the faculty grew, and uh, the, the, the faculty at Princeton was so highly educated that it was assumed that anybody on the faculty could teach any of the courses. You were not so specialized that the only thing you knew was the New Testament. You were not so specialized that you, the only thing you knew was uh, theology or apologetics or church history. It was assumed that you could teach Hebrew. It was assumed that you could teach Greek. It was assumed that you could teach throughout the curriculum. That's how rigorous and demanding uh, Princeton Theological Seminary was in the, in the first half of the 19th century. And, and Hodge was, was a, a key person in all that. Hodge was also a churchman. Uh, he participated in the life of the church. In fact, he founded, this was the age of great theological jur journalism. The early 19th century never produced so many journals that were published by various seminaries and various uh, sources. And the Biblical Repertory in Princeton Review was one of the foremost religious journals. And, and one of the things that you, if, if you were to read through all the issues of the Biblical Repertory, you would find not only did it deal with the Bible and theology, it also addressed the topic of science. It addressed the topic of literature. It addressed the topic of, of, of history. And so therefore, one of the things that you could see was how well-rounded 
a person who was grounded in Reformed theology was, so that, so that when one reads of politics, when one reads of economics, there's a Christian view that can be integrated with that. Um, and so therefore, the, the, the Biblical Repertory and Princeton Review was, was, was a great journal. Uh, and, uh, but when the issue came, uh, and it came uh, uh, four times a year, the first article that people always turned to was Hodge's report on the General Assembly. He always gave his take on what was happening in the church. He was a great churchman, and he wanted to see the church, as the, whole, the Presbyterian church uh, in America, to maintain its faithful adherence to, to the scriptures uh, and, uh, and, and to the Westminster Confession. And, and Hodge's, Hodge's report on the General Assembly was always detailed. You knew exactly where he stood. He was. Uh, he, he reported the, the debates of the seminary of the uh, uh, meetings. He reported what committees uh, reported. What was the state of the church? What was the state of education in the church? What was the state of evangelism in the church? Where where was missions going? So that so that a Presbyterian in the early part of the 19th century was extremely well informed that because they read these journals. It, it wasn't simply something that scholars read. It wasn't simply something that the pastors read, but the lay people read them, so that, that they were up to date on, on matters. Um, when the, when the Civil War broke out, it broke Hodge's heart. No one was more patriotic than Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge wept over the state of the country, and of course, what led up to that was he uh, was the issue of, of secession and the issue of slavery and the effect that it had on American culture. Uh, Charles Hodge was a kind of, a, a, at the beginning uh, of the debates over slavery, he wrote several essays on slavery over the period of time uh, leading up to the Civil War. And for Hodge, it was, it was clear that slavery was not condemned in the Bible, that slavery existed in the Bible, and so therefore he could not condemn slavery. Unfortunately, Hodge did not recognize enough, in my opinion, that there was a significant difference between biblical slavery and slavery in America. Uh, biblical slavery was an economic means by which a person could get out of debt. It's called indentured servitude. So that if you were in debt, you could, in debt, you could indenture yourself to somebody, get out of debt, and, re and receive your freedom. American slavery was not based on that economic system at all. It was based on man-stealing. Man-stealing is condemned in the Bible. And the great theologians in the South who defended slavery didn't see that. And they defended the institution of slavery. They defended the, as if the slavery that is in America was exactly the same thing as slavery in, in the Bible. And so eventually Hodge came to the position he thought that the abolitionists were far too extreme, that American culture could not take an abrupt shift in, in eliminating immediately uh, all systems of slavery. And so therefore, he said that slavery is simpler, uh, the kind of slavery that was being practiced had to be eliminated. The, the slave laws in the South were oppressive. And so therefore, he wrote articles against that. He, he said that, that, that we must see it as a lower form of civilization. At one point, the solution to slavery to some people was, let's just export the slaves. Let's just have them colonized back over in Africa again, where they came from. Uh, 
unfortunately, that idea never caught on to a great extent. But at one point, in fact, the first meeting of the American Colonization Society was held at Princeton, and uh, Archibald Alexander wrote on it. Um, so Hodge was not at his best dealing with the subject of slavery, but he did oppose the, the, the terrible slave condition, and he also differed from the Presbyterians in the South by saying that it is the church's task to address immoral activity when it is in the culture. That it's a, a spiritual task of the church, not simply to expound the Bible, but it, the spiritual task of the church is to address clear immoral activities that exist outside the church. So unfortunately, some of the Southern Presbyterian pastors preached from the pulpit supporting slavery, preached from the pulpit that, that if you're going to get rid of slavery, it must be the government that does that. And we're not advocating that that happen. Um, but, but, but Hodge says, no, that, that we have to get rid of, of, a, of an oppressive uh, situation of, uh, of slavery. When the Great Awakening, uh, Second Great Awakening, broke out in uh, uh, the middle of the, of the 19th century, uh, Hodge realized that, again, an awakening was taking place. And how can you be against conversions happening? Unfortunately, they were happening from another platform. Instead of happening from the foundation of God pouring out his grace in a sovereign manner, uh, the Second Great Awakening was the result of man's preparing for revival and engineering revival. Uh, and one, of course, uh, the great means of doing that was to produce what was called the anxious bench. The anxious bench was a bench in the middle, uh, in the middle of, the, of, of the floor in front of the congregation so that when the, an invitation was given, people could come up and sit on the anxious bench and, and struggle with whether they were going to become a believer or not. Um, as a result of the, the effect of the Second Great Awakening, Hodge noticed that the crisis-nurture model of the Christian life was taking over in the Presbyterian Church to such an extent that there were over 800,000 unbaptized Presbyterian babies in the period of the, uh, from up, uh, the early 19th century to the middle of the 19th century. In other words, uh, Presbyterians were following the model of let our children grow up, have a conversion experience, and, and not be nurtured. And they, so they didn't baptize their babies. They didn't, they didn't believe in, they didn't advocate the kind of covenantal aspect that, that all the members of the church consists of believers and their children. Uh, under the new model, a person does not become a member of the church until they're baptized. And Hodge says, what does this do to our children? It, it's, it suggests to our children that you can live a life of sin so that you can experience a dramatic conversion and then we'll get you educated. He said that's the, that's the end result of, of that kind of position. So, so Hodge just lamented the fact that nurture wasn't taking place, that revivalism had made such an impact on the Presbyterian church that, as I said before, I think it was 800, he did a, 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 an examination. It had to be meticulous. He went through the church rolls, uh, which were a matter of record in the Presbyterian church, and he found out that there were uh, over 800,000 babies 
that never were baptized that should have been if people were going to be consistent with their with their Presbyterian faith. Charles Hodge also uh, was famous uh, for his views of science. Charles Hodge loved science. Uh, every day he made a, he had a little memorandum book in which in the morning he would go out, note the direction of the wind, what was the temperature, and what the weather. Every single day he made a meteorological, such as it was, account of the day. Uh, and he uh, uh, was very meticulous uh, because his, his brother was a doctor. He was a gynecologist uh, at, the, uh, at Pennsylvania in, in the hospital of, uh, uh, of Philadelphia. And, uh, and so Hodge was, because of the, their interest in the Presbyterian Review, they reported on science. So, so Hodge always followed uh, the, uh, the advances of science. Well, we all know that one of the key things that came along in the middle of the 19th century was Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, in 1859, wrote the book, The Origin of the Species, in which he argued that man descended from a long ancestry of lower bi biological and animal life, and through a process of natural selection, uh, man emerged out of this biological evolutionary process. Well, Hodge addressed this in his theological lectures, but it was almost 10 years before he wrote perhaps one of his most famous books, and that is, What is Darwinism? And it was one long treatise on what Darwinism was as a view of life. And he said he, said he didn't want to pronounce about Darwin himself he says, I have no idea whether Darwin was an atheist or not. Uh, but he did say that Darwinism is atheistic. And the reason for that is there is no sense of design in Darwin's view of the development of evo evolution. There were other evangelical professors who wanted to adopt Darwin and to have a kind of theological Darwinism. In fact, uh, one of the major uh, professors in Boston was a man by the name of Asa Gray who belonged to Park Street Church in Boston, one of the great evangelical churches in American church history. And Asa Gray said, there's, there's no reason why we can't try to put Darwinism together with theism so that you have an evolutionary theism or a theistic evolution. And uh, uh, Asa Gray wrote to Darwin, to try to convince him that Darwinism can be modified in such a way that uh, the two can come together. And Darwin was unconvinced. He wrote back that that's not possible. So, so, so Hodge was, uh, stood very strong on the fact that, that man, he stood very strong on the fact of the unity of human race and that man was the special creation of God as explained in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And so, so, so Darwin, was, um, uh, Charles Hodge, gained the reputation for being one of the strongest opponents of Darwinism in its early stages. And we all know that there was a tremendous shift that took place in the middle decades of the 19th century. And one of those shifts was scientific in nature. And so therefore there were 
epistemological shifts. Where does our knowledge come from? There are scientific shifts. There were literary shifts in which the, the way in which Princeton was able to, to minister was, was, was now directed against the way that the culture was moving. And, and Hodge was, was so strong in his uh, position on that. One of the, I want to mention two additional things here uh, uh, that, that I think is important for, uh, for Hodge. I'd like to see how he related himself to other denominations, to other evangelicals. He did write an article uh, when the, uh, the Pope invited Presbyterians to attend the Second Vatican, First Vatican Council in 1870. That's the council at which the Roman Catholic Church declared the Pope to be infallible in matters of faith and practice. Um, Presbyterian Church received an invitation to attend the council as observers. Hodge's reputation was of such a nature that both the Southern Church and the Northern Presbyterian Churches both asked Hodge to be the one who answers the invitation. Hodge was gracious in his response, but he said that due to the significant differences between the theology of Roman Catholicism and Presbyterianism that they would decline the invitation. Hodge did, on one occasion, however, uh, defend Roman Catholic baptism as legitimate baptism. Uh, he said that the Roman Catholic Church may be like Old Testament Israel, called by God, but in the life of the prophets, apart from God. But, but still, he says, the ordinances of the Catholic Church are the, the, the sacrament of baptism is a valid sacrament. And he recalled the fact that when the reformers came along in the 16th century, they did not demand that people be rebaptized, that their baptism by a duly ordained minister using water and using a prescribed uh, uh, statement of, of uh, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that that constitutes a valid baptism. Uh, there were people who opposed Hodge on this, but but that shows that that Hodge was was careful in the way that he made uh, he made distinctions. <clears throat> in 1873, the Evangelical Alliance met in America. The Evangelical had Alliance had met in 1851, 1855, 1857, 1861, and 1867. And the Evangelical Alliance consisted of Evangelicals from all denominations meeting in 1873, it met in New York City for 10 days. There were 800 delegates, and Hodge was invited to come to open the meeting in prayer and then to give the first significant lecture on what constitutes evangelical unity. What kind of unity do all Christians have in common? And uh, the, the, uh, Hodge made the point that, uh, that the, uh, what held evangelicals together was, number one, the recognition that across the denominations, evangelicals could acknowledge that regardless of their denomination, uh, there was a unity that they had in Christ 
and there was a recognition that if you uh, were a confessing Lutheran, uh, if you were a con confessing Baptist, if you were a confessing Presbyterian, and the other denominations, and faith in Christ, he says, we have unity. He says there's also unity if, uh, in the recognition of, uh, uh, we must recognize that unity. We must not disparage other people's uh, differences in theology, but our own unity in Christ would, would be able to be recognized across uh, denominations. And then thirdly, he said there must be a recognition of the validity of their sacraments and their polity. Now, obviously, when we look at the history of denominationalism, that which is most divisive, perhaps, are the issues over the sacraments and polity. And uh, Hodge's view was that uh, while he held very strongly to infant baptism, while he held very strongly to, the, to the, the spiritual presence of Christ and memory of Christ in the Lord's Supper, he said we, we must acknowledge that, that there are valid expressions of the sacraments, even though they don't meet exactly ours, there has to be a recognition that uh, there, are, there is validity to other forms of church government, there are validity to other forms of the sacrament. I think his point would probably be that if the scripture were absolutely clear on these matters, all churches would be organized the same, all churches would perform the sacraments the same. It's uh, so no, I whatever your position is on the sacraments and polity, uh, I, I hope you hold firm to it. I hope you uh, acknowledge that you are basing your view of the sacraments and you're basing your view on church government. Uh, based on your best reading of Scripture, uh, in consulting with the traditions of the church, uh, uh, that certainly ought to be the way every church uh, does it. I, I, I'm a Presbyterian. I happen to believe that Presbyterians do it better. Uh, if, you'll for, if you'll forgive my, uh, my uh, little pride at that point, uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad I got a little laughter out of that instead of frowns. So, uh, so what, what is interesting is that this is the second major point where Hodge was invited to be a primary spokesman for the evangelical voice in America. The other time was much earlier in his life when the American Sunday School Union invited him to write a theology for the layman. And that theology for the layman became known as the way of life. It was one of the most popular documents that Hodge ever wrote, in which he tried to say, what is the way of life? What are the beliefs? What are the practices that unite all genuine Christians? So, so that writing of the way of life earlier and this appearance before the American Sunday School Union in 1873 represent the way in which Hodge reached out to others and was uh, expected accepted as a primary spokesman for the Presbyterian point of view, but that his, he, he would allow for the, for the fact that there is great unity in Christ uh, even outside of Presbyterianism. One last topic, and that is uh, Hodge's view of science in the systematic theology. I've already mentioned the fact that he wrote this uh, on, on Darwinism, but I, I just wanted to... Uh, Okay, three minutes. I got three minutes. Uh, Hodge realized 
that American science had reached a point where there was a tremendous struggle between theology and science. And he was concerned that science was becoming the only way that you can really know objective truth. And Hodge knew that if that idea were accepted in our broader culture, that there would continue to be not only a divorce, but a struggle between religion and science in America. And so he said, what we must have is an irenicum. Uh, irenicum is a word that is derived from the Greek word for peace. He says, we must realize that though science and religion deal with different aspects of dimensions of life, they clearly overlap. They clearly complement one another. Uh, Galileo wrote the letter to the Grand Duchess Christina in the 17th century saying that there are two books that God has written. There's the book of nature and there's the book of scripture. And the book of nature and the book of scripture can never contradict one another. The book of nature and the book of scripture can never contradict one another. He says, therefore, if uh, we, we must acknowledge the truth, the kind of truths that are found through science, but also the kind of truths that are found through the gospel, kind of truths that are found through conscience, kind of truths that are found through preaching. What is interesting is that Hodge saw the problems of science invading all the disciplines. Once you call sociology a science, once you call psychology a science, once you call politics a science, you are saying that the primary feature in those disciplines are empirical in nature, and it ignores human nature. And once you begin to study the psyche, the mind, using only empirical methods, you miss what man is all about. Once you study the family, simply adding up little digits of, uh, of scientific findings, you're going to miss what it is to nurture your family, what it is to have the morality, what it is to be live as, as a moral family. And, and so Hodge uh, warned that way ahead of his time, Hodge died uh, in, uh, in, in 18, uh, 1878, way before the, the social sciences took over American education, Hodge saw what was coming. So you can see why I'm excited about Charles Hodge. He was a, a great person. Uh, he was a great Christian. He had a fine mind and a great heart.